Well, good morning. Happy Lord's Day to you. Welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church. Last week, we finished a long series through Mark's Gospel, and we're going to take a a little bit of a uh, break, well, a break, so to speak, between uh, now and uh, Easter. Uh, The next four uh, Sundays, we are going to look at passages that speak to the four values of our church. This morning, worship. Next week, outreach. The week following, discipleship. And then the Sunday before Palm Sunday, on Communion Sunday, in fact, we will look at the value of covenant life, our life together. So these aren't uh, necessarily topical sermons in that we are uh, choosing passages that address uh, these values. Uh, Jake will be preaching on discipleship in two weeks' time. Uh, We're looking at passages that address these values, and we will uh, exposit uh, these particular texts, even though they don't say uh, everything about what we mean by saying this is a value of our church. These are introducing to us the topic of those values, the biblical subject matter of those values. And then uh, over the next few weeks, uh, you'll find more information on our website addressing these values. Uh, You'll find uh, short videos, uh, articles, uh, so that we can get closer to understanding what is meant by pursuing these values uh, as a congregation. So this morning, we are looking at the value of worship, and we will be in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. Little theologians, I would like for you to draw a picture of something and then make it better. Just draw a picture of something, anything, doesn't matter. I would prefer a car, but draw a picture of something and then tell me how you have made that something better. Improve it. Show me the improvements. Well, again, Hebrews chapter 12, uh, beginning at verse 18, Uh, looking at the matter of Christian worship. Would you, uh, first of all, join me in prayer? Our Holy Father, we thank you that in your majesty and in your grandeur, you reveal yourself. You make yourself known. You're doing that in the course of this worship service, and you will do so uh, through the reading and the preaching of your word. We trust that you will do so by the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for making yourself known to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, our passage, uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 12, uh, beginning at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, 
For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of our Lord. It actually is not inappropriate that we would go from Mark's gospel to then uh, Hebrews. Hebrews is a book that was most likely written to a body of believers in Rome as Mark was writing as well. It was probably, uh, Hebrews was probably written around the same time period, uh, maybe a few years uh, later. And it may be that this Roman uh, church was growing in influence and in, and in importance and was therefore receiving a lot of attention uh, from God's pastors. We don't know who this author is. Uh, But Hebrews, many scholars agree, actually reads less like a letter and more uh, like a sermon. The author himself calls it my word of exhortation. And like a good sermon, it's soul-stirring and it's encouraging, especially if you are a Christian who is struggling to persevere in your Christian walk, which on one level is true for all of us Christians, but perhaps very real for these Christians in Rome, since the preacher refers to the blood of persecution that they are enduring. And this preacher is concerned about showing us that Jesus is a focal point of all of God's purposes in redemption. Everything in the Old Testament, according to this preacher of Hebrews, everything in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, the priest, the temple, the feast, represent an old order of things that were meant to prepare us for the new order of Jesus. And the preacher tells us repeatedly that Jesus is far better, far better than all of these Old Testament circumstances. Literally, uh, God has provided something better. Did you see in verse 24 of our passage, he's the mediator of a new covenant and his sprinkled blood. You see that there in verse 24? His sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's a quote from Genesis 4. The preacher is asking us to turn back to Genesis 4. Uh, Abel's blood cried out for justice because his brother had killed him. But the blood of Jesus doesn't cry out simply for justice. His blood meets God's justice by paying the penalty for our sin. You see that. In Hebrews, Jesus is the better hope through which we draw near to God. That's from Hebrews chapter 7. The better hope through which we draw near to God. He's better because he allows us to draw ever closer and nearer to God. And I I want us to focus this morning on these last two verses We have to look at some context as we make our way there. And the context describes this, that the reality of the Christian life and Christian worship is that 
Jesus and the new covenant is not about drawing us near to the holy of holies in the temple or near to the foot of Mount Sinai. He's drawing us ever nearer to God himself. Let me tell you what this passage is about as we make our way to the last two verses. Jesus brings us near to God. And if that's the case, what we believe about worship should reflect this nearness. Jesus, he brings us near to God, nearer than ever before, which means what we believe about worship, it ought to reflect this nearness to God. I want to say three things, the first being this, worship is elevated assembly. Isn't that a strange expression? I think I've invented it. Worship is elevated assembly. Let me tell you what I mean. The Puritan John Owen, he divides our passage like this. The first part, verses 18 through 21, is about God's children coming close to God under the law. Do you see in these first few verses, God's children, they come to Mount Sinai. There's fire and darkness and gloom and tempest, and they're terrified. John Owen goes on to say that the second part of our passage, beginning at verse 22, 22 through 24, He says, that's not about God's children coming close to God under the law. Verses 22 through 24 are about God's children coming close to God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. John Owen says that the writer is showing us how superior the gospel is to that old order of things. In the old order, God's children came in terror to a dangerous mountain. That's not utterly unfamiliar to us as we come in worship. But nobody can touch that mountain and live, not even an animal. That's what the preacher reminds us of in verse 20. Only Moses could ascend that mountain. But in the new order, God's children come to, you see in verse 22, a heavenly place. The city of the living God. How much greater is that than a dirty mountain? This is not earthly Jerusalem, but the preacher says to us, this is heavenly Jerusalem. This is higher than Mount Sinai. And yet look how close we can approach. And while Mount Sinai was ascended only by Moses, the word you in verse 22, it refers to the entire church. You see in verse 22, it looks like just you, Y-O-U. But it's a plurality. And keep reading and you see that as they gather, they're called the assembly Literally, the church of the firstborn. As Christians, we all have an inheritance as if we were firstborns. Christians, in this passage, they're not alone. They're gathered. You see that they're gathered in verse 23, uh, not just among themselves, but they're gathered with someone else. Do you see that, verse 23? They're gathered also with the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Who do you think these are? Well, these are the followers of Jesus who died long ago. In fact, in Hebrews 12, verse 1, they're called something else, not the spirits of the righteous made perfect. They're called a cloud of witnesses, Hebrews 12, 1. You see then what's happening in verses 22 and 20 through 24. This is coming close to God by the power of the gospel. All Christians gather together as a church body and they get to come close to God. How wonderful is that? They get to come close to God through the gospel. 
And as they come to God, that's not all that's happening. It's not as if they all got together and they synchronized their watches so that they could arrive at the same time in the same place. There's more than that. As they come to God, God elevates them into his heavenly space. And as they are elevated, their assembly is joined by the assembly of Christians who have gone before them, who've died, and await their final resurrection. And in this very setting, God delivers a kind of Christ-centered sermon. Do you see this in verse 24? The blood of Jesus speaks a better word. Continues in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. How energized is your imagination? Are you trying to picture what this might be like? Coming together as an assembly, elevated into yet another assembly, and there being something happening there, an instruction, a speaking, and God, he's ever in charge. And all of this happens because of Jesus. Have you thought of worship in this way before? An earthly assembly, elevated into a heavenly assembly, to be taught by God himself. Many of us think of worship only as private. It's between me and God. And in fact, Scripture tells us that worship uh, is private. Psalm 63, listen to this. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. You hear that worship in Psalm 63. It's one person. There's always this private dimension to our worship. There are some traditions in the church that believe that corporate worship is nothing more than a collection of individual worshipers engaging God privately, but doing so in the same room and at the same time. These traditions might say that corporate worship is better than private worship, but they may only be saying that because there is a synergy that happens when everyone comes together. But I would charge that this view, we are all just gathered together at the same time in the same place, worshiping as private individuals, that view, it's too small. It's far too small for this passage. This passage tells us that worship is much more than this. It is an elevated assembly. I don't know if you uh, know the name of this scholar, uh, Johnny Gibson. He's an ordained Presbyterian minister uh, from Ireland, and he's a professor of theology at Westminster Seminary. Uh, He writes and speaks an awful lot on worship. In 2016, uh, Johnny and uh, his wife, Jackie, they had a stillborn baby girl. Little girl, full term, and she was dead. And Johnny tells the story of his daughter frequently. Her name was Layla. And when Layla died, their three-year-old boy, Ben, he was struggling to come to terms with the death of his baby sister. So Johnny, he wrote a book for his son and for other children who have lost a sibling. And the book is called The Moon is Always Round. You should pick up a copy. A couple of years ago, uh, Johnny delivered a series of lectures uh, on worship in the Bible. 
And I was listening to these lectures in preparation for this morning. And I knew the story of Layla before I heard these lectures. I've met Johnny and Jackie. But in these lectures, uh, he says that if worship is corporate and elevated the way we read in Hebrews 12, and Johnny says this, when we gather to worship, we are with our loved ones who loved Jesus but died. Johnny says that when they gather together for worship, Layla is there. What do you think about that? Shocking? You see that in this passage? When we gather to worship, those who've gone before us, followers of Jesus who have died and no longer have their bodies await, their glorified bodies, that they're with us in worship. That's what this passage is telling us. Such is the power of the gospel that, that we come so near to God so near that those who've gone before us, they're with us in worship, here, now. Jesus, he brings us near to God. So what we believe about worship, it ought to reflect this nearness. So worship is elevated assembly. Uh, The second thing I want to say is that worship is dangerous because God is holy. I know you may not like that phrase, worship is dangerous, but let me tell you what I mean. I don't want to spend a great deal of time here, but verses 25 through 27, they're they're a little bit uh, tricky, but I want us to see uh, that the writer of Hebrews, the preacher, he's revealing God's character in a very poignant way with these verses 25 through 27. He's writing to Christians in Rome. He begins his passage preaching about a people of God who are coming to the foot of Mount Sinai. And in these verses here, verses 25 through 27, he transports himself there again to the foot of the mountain. He seems to be reminding himself that there were a lot of people at the foot of Mount Sinai who saw and heard evidence of God's presence. And they were terrified. And yet with all of that, standing before that shaking mountain, being terrified because God is there, with all of that, they even still, verse 25 says, refused God. The writer of Hebrews knows that this same thing happens in our churches today. That is happening in the church at Rome. There are people who are coming to corporate worship services, but they don't really believe in God. I, I think that's what the writer is admitting. There are people here this very morning who come to worship in this place, but they don't actually believe in God. They're not true followers of Jesus. You see, worship is both corporate and it's private, but worship is also all of life. The Bible tells us this. Paul describes our spiritual worship as a life presenting to, presented to God as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to Him. At the very end of, this, of his sermon, the writer of Hebrews want, warns us to continually offer up sacrifices of praise to God. He says that at the very end, Hebrews 13, continually offer up sacrifices of praise to God. He doesn't mean only do that Sunday. 
Christian, you were made to worship God. And in Jesus, you were commanded to worship him with all of your strength and your soul and your might in all that you think and say and do. Everything about your life, Christian, is meant for worship to God. But it's not just you for whom that's true. Every person was created by God to worship him. It is God's thumbprint upon every human. Worship is irresistible. Everyone worships some God or thing or institution or person. Everyone worships. Everyone has a devotional life. Everyone has a religious practice. Uh, Everyone, everyone, everyone. It is impossible not to worship. But many do not worship the one true God even while attending the corporate worship service intended for God's people. Just like at the foot of Mount Sinai, there are people who acclimate themselves to corporate worship. They learn the lingo. They follow the liturgy. They dress the part. They grin and grab. But they do not believe in the one true God through Jesus of Nazareth. Verses 25 through 27 tell us that God, he is holy. He's holy. Remember that shaking mountain. A day will come when the earth will shake again. Jesus will return, not just physically as when Mount Sinai trembled. Uh, He will come just as physically as the trembling of Mount Sinai. And he will judge those who say they were followers of him, but are not. Those who enjoy the worship, but refuse him. Jesus will come again and judge You see, Christian, Jesus, he brings us near to God to be corporately elevated near to him. But Jesus doesn't, in doing so, dilute or domesticate the character of God. Look in verse 29. You see what he says? Right on the heels of the beauty of worship, God is a consuming fire. Quoting Deuteronomy 4, God, he is jealous. He wants our worship. He made us to worship, and he wants all of it. And when Jesus covers believers with his perfect righteousness, you know that he's not removing the dangerousness of God. He's not taming God. God is holy and jealous What Jesus does instead is rather than dilute God or domesticate him, Jesus, he protects all those who are his. He protects us from the danger of God's holiness. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But because God is holy, there will be condemnation for those who are not truly in Christ. You cannot use the worship of God the way you use the worship of idols. You see, whatever idols we worship, they are not dangerous. Idols cannot speak. Idols cannot judge. Idols are not holy. All of our idols are nothing but happy playthings that service our own needs. But God is not like this. He's dangerous. And when you come to worship him, you must worship him as he sees fit. And that's where we're turning to now. Worship is elevated assembly. That's the first point. Worship is dangerous because he is holy. And now, worship must be acceptable to God. 
You see those last two verses, 28 and 29? Keep in mind that I'll close with a few concluding thoughts about worship here at Covenant. But for this main point, I want us to focus our attention on three stipulated responses to what God does for us in worship. Remember, Jesus, he brings us near to God. And what we believe about worship should reflect this nearness. What this passage tells us or shows us that there are three proper responses to this nearness of God that we have through Jesus. And I want to call these three grateful, reverent, or reverence, and gladness. Gratefulness, reverence, and gladness. I'll tell you what I mean. Look at verse 28. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be grateful. That word in the Greek is really two words. It means to uh, have a sense of gratitude. God has given to us something as a gift. Do you see that? There's something that uh, we do not earn but receive. And what he's given us as a gift is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. In the old order, the mountain shook and people were terrified, but no longer. The shaking now is reserved for those who do not have Christ. They will be condemned. But we, as Christians, in Christ Jesus, we've received the precious gift of Jesus. He's our ransom. He's our righteousness. And when we worship, we're full of gratitude. That's the first response. The second is reverence. You see that in verse 28? This word for reverence is rare. It only occurs two other times. It's very difficult to translate the word reverence and the next word awe, which I'm calling gladness. But uh, reverence, the perhaps best way to translate it is a high regard for the Heavenly Father. The only other time it's used is in Hebrews 5. And there the preacher of Hebrews says that Jesus himself offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears in his earthly ministry. And he was heard because of his reverence. The word has to do with a deep trust and respect for God, a thoughtfulness about God, a cautious attitude towards God, perhaps. It really could be translated as a fear. Calvin thinks it may be humility, but he dwells no more than a sentence and a half on both of these words. John Owen says that it refers to a proper sense of God's majesty. That's what reverence is, and I think that's very helpful. When we worship, we are full of a sense of God's majesty. That's reverence. Gratitude, reverence, and finally gladness. And here I would ask that you tolerate me taking just a little bit of liberty with that word awe. The word awe only shows up here in the Bible. And it's really very similar to reverence. It could actually be translated as fear. But the real uh, spike of this word is that awe refers to a kind of shock But I think that it's a happy shock. It's a gladness that God does not punish us for our sin. And here I want to copy Robert Godfrey in finding a sense of joy in this word, awe. A sense of gladness in our awe before God. He's forgiven us and in addition to a fearful sense of his majesty, there's an awe-inspiring sense of his forgiveness. There are places in the Psalms that remind us of this combination of reverence and joyful awe. Psalm 211 says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Isn't that a strange combination? Fear and rejoicing. Psalm 111.9 says, holy and awesome 
is his name, holy and awesome. When we worship, we are full of a sense of glad awe. These are the three responses that are acceptable uh, before God in worship in these last two verses. Gratitude, reverence, and gladness. Because Jesus brings us near to God, what we believe about worship should reflect this nearness through gratitude, reverence, and gladness. Worship is elevated assembly. Worship is dangerous because he's holy. And worship is acceptable when we worship in gratitude, reverence, and gladness. I want to tie all of these together very quickly and just say a few things about our view of worship here at Covenant. This passage tells us that in Jesus we have a better covenant than the old covenant. He brings us nearer to God in worship. What we believe about worship reflects this in these ways here. Here at Covenant we believe that worship is indeed all of life. We were made to worship with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And we were made to worship him in all that we think, say, and do. We believe that here. We believe that worship is expressed privately in our personal lives and should be expressed privately in our personal lives. But this passage tells you what we also believe about worship as we gather together as a body corporately. Scripture makes these striking promises here in Hebrews 12 about gathering together as a church in worship. And as church leaders, our elders want not only to commend corporate worship to you, we actually want to command corporate worship to you. Scripture does that in Hebrews 10.25. We are not to neglect meeting together. That's a reference to worship. We feel so strongly here about corporate worship. We as elders command you to never neglect gathering together in worship. When we worship, we believe that there's not just the action of those worshiping as if we all have what it takes to walk through those doors and be a part of this worship. No. As we gather together, we're witnessing the action of God, not the action of men and women. Even though he's a consuming fire, dangerous, holy, he promises to elevate us into his presence through Jesus as we gather to worship. Your leaders really believe that, and you need to know that. In worship, we gather together, and by God's power, we join with the universal church, and we join with those who have gone before us. Yes, this is mysterious and and really uh, hard to imagine. Jesus, he doesn't just save us. He elevates us as brothers and sisters that we together might draw near to God. We really believe that. A few more things and I'll close us. When we come together, our elders structure our worship service as uh, no mere meeting between people, but a meeting between the saints and God. There is a conversation that happens as we gather to worship. That's one of the reasons why our liturgy shaped the way it is. We believe that God invites us into worship. Only He can do that. We can't invite ourselves. He invites us in His grace, so we have a call to worship. Only He can assure us of the forgiveness that we have in Christ, and He does so in our worship. And he consecrates us with his word, washes us with his very word, the word that is preached and the word of Holy Scripture that is read. And having been elevated thus, we respond to him in praise and adoration and song. We're enabled to do that by his grace. You see, 
I'm very happy that you're here this morning. Thank you for being here. But when we come to this place, we're not here experiencing normal life. We're not here experiencing the same thing as last night or the same morning as Saturday or Friday or Thursday before. When we come to this place, we're not experiencing normal life. We're experiencing the work of God. We are experiencing a taste of heaven. Our response is one of gratitude, reverence, and gladness because of the power of the gospel that makes that happen. Because after all, it's through the power of God and the gospel of Jesus that we are brought so very near. Good morning again, and let's pray together. Father, just when we think we understand what Jesus has done for us, there's more. We thank you that the grace that we have in Christ is not a grace that can be measured. You call it abundant. And if it's abundant from your perspective, oh my, help us to see the abundance of your grace and to take great delight. We thank you for Jesus in his name. Amen.